Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 1st, 2022, and I'm joined as usual in studio by IPI resident scholar and fellow space nerd, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today we're going to talk about the fact that we are going back to the moon with IPI Research Fellow, Dr. Dan Gerritsen. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Tom. How are you? We're delighted to have you back with us. Uh, Dan is a certifiable expert in these matters. He has a PhD in astrophysics from Harvard University, so he has actually studied the things that Dr. Matthews and I just sort of like fantasize about and stay up late at night reading books under the covers in bed about when we were teenagers, right? <laughs> we're, we're all space nerds here. And uh, this is Artemis week. Artemis was scheduled to launch on Monday. It was, uh, the flight was uh, delayed because of an engine problem. It's scheduled to go up on Saturday, just two days from today. So we thought this would be a great time to do another podcast on space policy, talking about Artemis and SpaceX and the fact that the space program really has not only been resurrected, but dramatically expanded since our boyhood days of Gemini and Apollo and the moon landing. So, Dan, uh, we haven't been to the moon since about 1972. And uh, landing Americans on the moon has sort of fallen into the same category as supersonic flight of the Concorde. It's like, we reached these advanced levels of technology, and then we just set them aside and abandoned them. <laughs> and it, you know, for for folks like Dr. Matthews and I, who are champions of innovation and technology, uh, that seems to have been a multi decades long mistake. And we're really excited to see things getting back going. So, tell us a little bit about uh, the Artemis program, the program of getting Americans back in space, and where you think we are right now. Yeah, sure. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right in a sense. I mean, they, they are in uh, a very real sense how this the we're seeing a, a total resurgence here. And it's in many ways a very different program than we saw previously, where this is uh, a huge amount of activity and investment uh, from the private sector. Uh, there's been a lot of things happening, in particular over the last, I would say, 15 years or so where uh, you know, some interesting policy, policy decisions were made in the, in the aughts uh, that have led to uh, just an explosion of activity in this space. Um, I, think, I think there was both the policy decisions as well as just a convergence of technology and resources um, that uh, you know, we were finally at the point where a lot of private sector activity became very viable. Um, and so now we're seeing a lot of the out, uh, outgrowth of that um, with, uh, with a lot of the activity going on. Interestingly, I think Artemis is something of a throwback in that context. Um, it is, uh, you know, derivative of the more of the type of space program we had in the, uh, the latter century, latter half of the 1900s. Uh, and, uh, you know, represents a lot of the model of the, you know, the typical government led defense contractor uh, kind of investment model. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the pieces come from that era with uh, with most of the pieces of it uh, uh, coming from, let's say, the space shuttle and and related technologies. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, all in all, I think incredibly exciting all around. I think it's really interesting uh, in that context to see the partnership that's going on with uh, uh, with NASA and the private sector and some of the things that are bringing this uh, bringing this together. 
Um, and yet it's also interesting to sort of reflect on kind of where we're starting to see this divergence between what's been going on in the public sector and the private sector and the uh, the the sort of evolving nature of how we go about this space exploration activity. You know, so, Dan, the uh, the why did the federal government decide to go with Boeing on this as opposed to one of the other ones like SpaceX? Especially since SpaceX has been doing things for the space station and other things. I mean, they've had an experience with that. Yeah. Um, so I, I think a large part of it was because a lot of these decisions uh, that really have led to the Artemis program were, in effect, locked in before SpaceX was really a viable candidate for this. Um, so uh, you, you, you recall with the uh, Space Shuttle Columbia disaster and all the rest around, I think that was 2001, um, and uh, all that led from that, there was the original, original Moon, Mars, and Beyond mission from the Bush administration, uh, and then you ended up with the uh, Constellation program, and then the transition under the Obama administration from that, uh, ultimately to uh, uh, the, the sort of emerging space exploration program, uh, and the, then the Trump, um, uh, I guess, resurgence of that as well, that ultimately has created Artemis. Um, a lot of the decisions that have led to this architecture were kind of baked in in the uh, early 2000s. Um, SpaceX was still, you know, if you, uh, I believe SpaceX launched in 2002, um, uh, they had their Falcon one for the first several years and then switched over to the Falcon nine in the late, uh, 2000s. Um, and then, uh, you know, to the, the aughts there, I guess, uh, and then have been building up capability from there to the Falcon heavy. And then more recently Starship Starship's more, you know, I think last five, uh, five to 10 years, certainly six, seven years, something like that. Um, and so it really was not a candidate when they were developing the Artemis architecture. What was available was, of course, the uh, the space shuttle hardware. And since we were shutting down the space shuttle program, this was a great opportunity, as seen by NASA anyway, um, for taking that technology that had been developed there, the, you know, the space shuttle main engines, uh, which became the RS-25s that are now, you know, the, the main engines powering the Artemis, uh, the solid rocket boosters, the um, the kind of the fuel container essentially for the for the space shuttle that became this kind of the center core of artemis all of them of course substantially redesigned but effectively derived from that uh, those core components that were there before um, you, know, you know dan i am uh i'm just a space fanboy, and so i just can't help but get excited about all of the above so i'm setting my alarm and i'm getting up early to watch the artemis flight and all of that and, you know, I'm, I'm wishing NASA well, and I'm wishing Artemis well. But, you know, you look at that Artemis rocket, and it looks an awful lot like the space like the space shuttle with those side boosters and everything. Uh, yeah. you're, you're not. You're not a, a big fan, necessarily, of the Artemis program. And, and I think it goes to the point of you've got a real contrast between SpaceX and Artemis. Artemis representing sort of the old way of doing things and SpaceX representing the new way of doing things. And I hearken back to the space shuttle program where it seems like it took them four to six months to launch a shuttle. And yep. I think, I think SpaceX is on a course right now that they're launching a, a flight on average about every six days. That's a huge yep. difference in models. Totally agree. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I think, and I'll distinguish a little bit between, you know, the, uh, the program and the, the approach that NASA has taken. And of course the objectives I'm, Obviously, totally excited about the the space exploration, very much like you. Uh, I think the Artemis launch will be exciting to watch. It's going to be an amazing achievement. And yet, at the same time, it represents an investment of resources in a less efficient way than uh, you know the private sector, as sort of exemplified by what by what's being done by SpaceX. Um, you know, is able to accomplish. You know, the the Artemis program. There's a, a lot of investment in getting it right. So we have basically three launches. 
Um, you know, they're they're doing this one now. There's two more planned over the coming years, one of which, you know, the next ones will, will include crew going around the moon and then actually landing on the moon. SpaceX, on the other hand, with their uh, particularly their Starship vehicle, and they're launching all the time. They're, they And I don't know how many launches they've done, not keeping track of the numbers, but, um, you know, the, and they have occasional failures, failure of, of the sorts where, you know, I think even a, a couple of times they've had the, uh, the vehicle destroyed um, and had to rebuild. Um, that would be disaster for the NASA program, for the Artemis program. Um, and, uh, you know, probably to the extent of unrecoverable disaster just because of the way they manage it versus that's part of the way SpaceX operates. They, it's a, a Silicon Valley mindset of test often, fail early, figure out what goes wrong, um, you know, fix it and adjust. Um, and that's, and you can see it in the cost differentials. I, I, I don't know the full estimates for the SpaceX, but I've seen estimates of Artemis in the range of 93 billion and SpaceX more in the, you know, 10 billion range. Um, for developing maybe not quite similar capabilities, although, you know, we, we're yet to see how far SpaceX is going to push it, but they're they're moving along very rapidly and going to have a lot of the capability. Their their vehicle has a greater throw weight in the end or will uh, when accomplished. So it's it's a very different program, very different outcomes at a very different cost uh, and represents the, uh, the sort of benefits of going with a private sector model. You know, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, first of all, Artemis, I think, is well understood to be like way over budget, uh, years late and billions of dollars over budget yeah. uh, because of the defense contractor model that was still being used for Artemis. On the other hand, because SpaceX operates essentially on a flat rate uh, business model, it's it, my understanding is it's impossible for SpaceX to go over cost because they literally bid a flat amount to the federal government, whereas Artemis is that old defense contractor model where it seems like the delays are a constant and going over budget is a constant. Yep. Yeah, it would be kind of like, you know, let's say I wanted to um, uh, ship, you know, some goods from here to China and so forth. And so I said, okay, to do that now, I'm going to go out and build my own vehicle. I'm going to contract to build my own ship. Uh, you know, I might bring in some contractors that are working under my direction. I'm going to figure out how to do that. Then I'm going to figure out how to build the cargo containers uh, that I'm going to put the, the stuff in. And so I do that versus, you know, the model that, of course, the private sector really evolved, which is you've got the shipping companies that build the ships and uh, they operate them and they're they're making as efficient as possible so they can take as many different loads as possible. They're working with different customers and so forth. And that's kind of where this distinction um, NASA could could go that same direction. They could decide, okay, we're out of the launch business. We are now going to be um, focused purely on the scientific objectives, and we're going to buy the services for things like launch from whoever can provide it. Um, you know, there might have been an argument 15 years ago when they were putting this program together and really designing, designing the architecture, you know, ultimately several iterations since then, obviously, but uh, designing the architecture that there was no private sector alternative. But it's emerging now. Um, SpaceX has made it very clear that they're, you know, intending to go not only to the moon, but to Mars. Uh, and you've got uh, Blue Origin waiting in the wings or not waiting, obviously doing a lot of their own work uh, to put their own launch vehicles together. So you have some real alternatives where NASA could basically be a buyer of services as opposed to the ones building their own ship to get where they want to go. Dan, do you agree with the three trip uh, approach that they have going that they've sort of set out right now? And then my understanding is the goal is to build a space station circling the moon and then uh, astronauts would go from the U from the uh, from the Earth to the space station would ha would be on the space station a little bit and then they'd descend to the moon from the space station and come back so the the space station would be sort of the working place to be sending people to the moon is it do you sort of agree with that approach 
Yeah, it, I the the approach makes a ton of sense. I mean, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? So the vehicle, the, there's so many different aspects to lift off from Earth, getting from Earth orbit to orbit of the moon, and then landing on the moon. It's just three completely different uh, operating environments. And of course, many sub environments along the way. Um, so to break it up that way, to have the gateway, uh, as they're calling it, the uh, the platform that would be orbiting the moon, to have the gateway uh, space station there as a waypoint, um, you know, really helps you design uh, the the architecture in a way that's that's a lot more efficient. Um, the sort of single vehicle to get from here to there is kind of uh, a bit of the mindset of we're going there, planting the flag, and and we're done. Um, so it's not kind of a sustainable architecture in the same way that a, a multi-component architecture like this will be. Dan, you would not be associated with us here at the Institute for Policy Innovation if you did not believe in limited government and uh, and also innovation. So yeah. let's wrap up with the discussion about why is why is it compelling from a from a public interest standpoint to go back to the moon and then to possibly go to Mars. Um, I think there's many different answers to that. There's certainly a really interesting sort of uh, uh, desire to explore and understand the universe aspect to it that drives, you know, perhaps the public sector uh, investment. One could question whether it's worth the money that we do invest in it. Uh, but, you know, just wanting to see what's out there. Obviously, there's questions about, you know, origins, how we think about the origin of the solar system, how we think about whether uh, about the origin of life and, in fact, whether we find any on NASA, uh, sorry, on Mars or on the moon, for that matter. Uh, not, yeah, probably not going to find on the moon at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, things that we can explore and get the, the science around. So that's a really interesting thing. And, and that becomes then, of course, a values question, how much we invest in it. But the other side of that is that's really exciting is the possibilities that, you know, there's a real, real uh, potential emergence of space tourism at this point. Um, as companies like SpaceX look at uh, look for more customers, try to drive down their costs, you know, if they can make it to an achievable point where, you know, it, initially it's going to be very high net worth individuals with a kind of adventuresome strength, uh, streak that want to go into orbit. And then, of course, obviously want to go walk on the moon themselves. It's, a, uh, in my mind, just an incredibly exciting uh, future. We'll see whether I'm around to see any of it. But a future where, you know, people, uh, ordinary people, in a sense, can get to experience these environments uh, and really sort of get the thrill from uh, from activity. A lot of things that have driven activity uh, on the Earth for so many, you know, for so many people going from, you know, climbing Mount Everest or whatever. It's just this kind of desire to explore and people can get to explore it. So I think I think that part of it is incredibly exciting and the things that it can open up. There's also commercial opportunities that uh, that you know can be developed as we start to develop sort of an economy in space, so to speak. Uh, excited to see some of that. That's probably you know still quite a bit further down the road, but but we'll take advantage of a lot of these same capabilities that are being built as as the private sector uncovers those commercial opportunities. Well, Dan, if the uh, if the uh, space tourism business gets down to the price point where the average middle class person can afford it. Uh, you and I and Dr. Matthews will all three go up at the same time. How about that? That sounds like a plan. I'm all, I'm all in. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Dan, for joining us. You can follow Dan's work at IPI.org, our website, his work on space policy. We'd, we would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org if you're interested in space policy or technology and innovation. You can sign up there to receive notices of all of our new podcasts content, and events. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? 
You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you, perhaps in space, next time.